It's Friday night. You're watching Tisky Sour, and I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm very well, Michael. Great to be joining you this evening. Some really big stories. This week, we were reassured that Boris Johnson's cabinet were meeting to thrash out responses to the cost of living crisis. And I could have given them a few ideas. Rent controls would make my life a lot easier. And raising benefits in line with inflation could protect millions from destitution. But no, the Tories have another genius plan to deal with the cost of living crisis, making 91,000 civil servants redundant. Speaking to the Daily Mail, Boris Johnson said, We have got to cut the cost of government to reduce the cost of living. Every pound the government preempts from the taxpayer is money they can spend on their own priorities, on their own lives. The plans would slash the size of the civil service by one-fifth. But speaking to Sky, Jacob Rees-Mogg underplayed its significance. Why isn't this being described as a, as a return to austerity? Because that is what it is, isn't it? Well, significant cuts to departmental budgets, significant cuts to, de to departmental staffing levels. It's austerity by another name. I don't think it is, because what is being done is getting back to the efficiency levels we had in 2016. So we're told these cuts would just be a return to the norm. And elsewhere in the interview, it was implied we can afford to cut back on civil servants because we're past the worst when it comes to both Brexit and the pandemic. But even if we do accept we're past the worst, and that's a big if, Mogg's claim is still incredibly misleading. That's because 2016 isn't the norm against which future plans should be measured. In fact, that year was the absolute low point for staffing in the civil service. That was following, of course, six years of Tory and Lib Dem austerity. It's also important to be clear who civil servants actually are. As they make these cuts, the government will be keen to present civil servants as a bunch of privileged pencil pushers in Whitehall. But according to the Institute for Government, the vast majority of civil servants work in frontline roles, delivering services directly to the public. They include the people that work in job centres, that work in prisons, or who process your tax returns. And all this means what the Tories are proposing does look like Austerity 2.0. And Rees-Mogg was tackled on whether the plans were steeped in old-fashioned Tory ideology. So this is all just ideological, isn't it? I mean, rather, you, we understand the Conservative desire to see a smaller state. You're certainly not talking, as I understand it, you're one of those voices around the cabinet table disagreeing with potentially a windfall tax on the energy companies. Well, the only bit that is ideological is that we should spend taxpayers' money properly and not wastefully. Now, you may call, I mean, you're tackling, well, I'm, I'm you may call that ideologically. I think that's... I'm just gently sensible. suggesting targeting okay, public rather than perhaps, private sector is but, ideological. But, but, but do you think that any of your viewers thinks we should waste taxpayers' money and employ people we don't I mean, that's, a ridiculous, that's a farcical question. No, it's of not, actually, because you are saying of course this is purely ideological when it's about efficiency. It's about doing things properly. It's about governing effectively and recognising that every penny we take in tax has to come off the backs of people working hard. You Aaron, watching that, I feel like I've entered a time machine and woken up a decade ago. What's mm. your take on this announcement? <sighs> so interesting, Michael. I think it probably isn't deliverable. I don't think they're serious about actually cutting 91,000 jobs. I, I think what this does show is it's kind of firing the starting gun on the next general election. They probably won't be able to do major tax cuts. I think there will be major tax cuts. Within the context of the cost of living crisis, the tax cuts on their way probably won't touch the sides. But what they want to do going into 2024 is saying, we're a low-tax, low-spend Tory government that favours the private sector. There's not many ways they can do that. They can't really help business. They can't really cut people's taxes. I think we can expect, for instance, a cut to the base rate. You know, Sunak's already talked about that. And a few other measures too. Because you have to remember, 
the one big advantage of rising inflation is you get more in VAT tax receipts. So the Tories are sitting on potentially tens of billions, which will go towards tax cuts in, in 2023. I think that alongside attacking the public sector is how they're going to try and win that election. As well as, of course, saying that Keir Starmer is in the pocket of Nicola Sturgeon and, and John McDonnell, point to, you know, the disintegration of the union, rejoining the EU, all those old tunes. I think center stage will be this plan to recover lost Tory voters. And they're losing, they're losing their base. They're hemorrhaging their base, the Liberal Democrats in the South. Stuff like this is, is the way they see them returning to the party. And do you think they're going to be able to do it? Because obviously, you know, the austerity we saw, well, people argue it hasn't ended, but the austerity that was sort of the government project from the 2010s onwards, there was a lot of groundwork done to to justify that and make it a political project, which, you know, worked for the self-interest of the Conservative Party, obviously got re-elected with a majority in, in, in 2015. And people were generally supportive of those awful, those god-awful policies. But the groundwork was there where they said, you know, the financial crisis we've been through, that was because of overspending. This is because of skivers, sorry, I was forgetting what it was, strivers and skivers, wasn't it? This is because of skivers mm. who can't be bothered to work, et cetera, et cetera. They'd built up a whole sort of ideological infrastructure, which meant that people really believed that money was being wasted and that we needed to shrink the state. I feel like they've sort of just picked this civil servants one out of absolutely nowhere. It feels like they haven't really bothered to do the hard work. Obviously, I'm glad they haven't bothered to do the hard work, but they haven't done the, the, the pre-work where you sort of make people desire for things to be cut back and you sort of make people feel like, oh, there are all these selfish civil servants who are taking my tax money away from me. I feel like it, it feels like they've just pulled it out of a hat. Well, they have, but it's, there's also not that many places for them to cut. You know, They're saying that they're going to oversee big increases in infrastructure spending, which to, to some extent they are with HS2. They obviously can't cut the NHS. It's a, it's a, it's a political kind of sacred cow. Military spending, obviously, given what's going on with Russia, Ukraine, they can't really touch that. Education, well, higher education, they're, they're, there's not really much left to cut, although they are cutting a little bit of funding to arts and humanities. And what you're seeing as well is um, freezing on tuition fees. Of course, that's good. But what it means for universities is, well, we've got staff who want a pay rise because, of course, inflation is going to hit 10%, but our incomes from our students aren't going up and the central government's not giving us more. So there is, there is pay restraint in so many places, but, but the one place... But I think there's the least political overhead for them is, is the civil service. And, you know, will they get away with it? Well, look, the 91,000, they're saying it's going to be through natural wastage, i.e. not hiring people, let people retire and, and not replacing them. You know, that's a lot of people to do like that. So it'll be very, very slow. It's not going to be what it seems. It won't be like the post-2010 cuts. We have big acts falling quite quickly. You saw it immediately with the autumn statement in 2010. It was immediate cuts to the civil service. That's not what, from, from what we can see here, that's not what's being proposed. But like I say, I think it's really kite flying, you know, and I, I don't think this is anything other than a, a pseudo event. You know, we've talked about pseudo events where in politics, people try and manufacture a pseudo event to, to seize the sort of political initiative and to make the weather. You saw that a bit with the Rwanda immigration story. The Tories will put it on the table. They'll say it's a pilot. Even if it gets blocked or it's declared illegal or God knows what, they can say, well, we tried to do it. We're battling against these vested interests, the human rights lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. And the battle is half the story. You know, if, if now civil service unions push back against this, as of course they should, then the government will be able to say, look, we're in a fight. Starting those fights in politics is always useful. You know, the left needs to do it as well. The left should be picking fights with the 1%, finance, the city of London, landlords. And you should be saying these people don't create meaningful wealth. They're not really useful for much of society. 
you know, the Tories start their fights, the right start their fights, the left don't, particularly the centre-left, when they're in charge, they, they pull their punches. And actually, you know, that's pro probably what's the most refreshing thing about the Biden presidency. I don't think he's radical or even, you know, necessarily effective. But they are picking, interestingly enough, fights. Uh, and in politics, when you're in a pickle, picking fights is a, is, a, is a good way to begin to claw yourself out. So let's see how it goes. Let's go to our next story. After killing one of Palestine's most famous and well-regarded journalists, Shireen Abu Akhla, Israeli forces have attacked mourners carrying her coffin. Her former employer, Al Jazeera, was broadcasting live as the body of their slain colleague was carried out of a hospital and towards a church for her funeral. Analyzed, I've looked at news throughout the world for decades, and I've never seen a scene like this. Look at that. Attacking innocent people, carrying a casket. I, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say anymore. W what are they expecting now? This is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Oh my God. Such disrespect for the dead and for those who are mourning the dead. How is that a security threat to anyone? How is that disorderly? Why does that require this kind of repression, this kind of violence? on the part of Israelis. That's right. Israeli forces killed one of the Arab world's most famous journalists and then they attacked her funeral while her employer streamed the images across the world. Have you ever, ever seen a clearer image of a country that doesn't care how people see it? I can't think of a clearer physical manifestation of state impunity. They just don't care. Police using their batons to hit people as they're carrying a coffin. I, I've never seen anything like that in my life. People carrying a coffin of one of the world's most well-renowned journalists, one of the most well-renowned journalists of the Arab world, and then you've got a, an occupying force hitting people with batons who are carrying, you know, presumably this is the people carrying her coffin will be her friends, her colleagues, and they're getting hit with batons while they're carrying their friend on their shoulders. Now, I think you could also hear their flashbangs or, or stun grenades, which presumably were thrown by the police. They were not holding back. This was people trying to, to take the coffin from a hospital to her funeral. It's mind-blowing. We've got a bit more context here. So Lina Al-Safin, who is a producer at Al Jazeera, reported, Israeli forces have given orders to arrest anyone who raises the Palestine flag during Shireen Abu Akhla's funeral in Jerusalem. So anyone who raises the flag, right? And obviously she was very famous as a journalist covering Palestinian issues. And she was killed by an occupying force. You, you would want to be waving the Palestine flag. And even that is too much for them to tolerate after they kill a world-famous journalist. Of course, though, as you can see in footage of later in the day, Palestinians remained undeterred. Thousands of people amassed while Shireen Abu Akhla's coffin was carried through occupied East Jerusalem. Multiple Palestinian flags being flown. Aaron, I want to go to you for your comments on those just extraordinary images we've seen from, from East Jerusalem. I think this must be the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. I can't think of another moment recently where when her coffin fell, instinctively your hand goes over your mouth, doesn't you think, oh my God. And there is something that's universal amongst, there are many things which are universal among humans. One is generally a respect for the dead. It doesn't mean you have to like them or, you know, um, mourn for them, but generally speaking... Um, attacking an unarmed group of people, holding aloft a coffin. I mean, I, I can't think of any other examples. There are recent examples in in Ireland, but but like 
like that. I, I, I've not seen them. I'm sure other people can say, well, there, there are examples. I've never seen another example that brazen. There is a video, which, which wasn't played here, which shows just brief moments before that started. There was no altercation. They were a peaceful crowd, and it was initiated by the Israeli forces. This has been repeatedly described by the BBC as clashes. Um, BBC News uh, on Twitter said that the coffin had been jostled. Uh, there, were, there was violence. And, you know, to say there's clashes is like saying, that, you know, there was a clash between a bullet and John F. Kennedy's head in Dallas. There wasn't a clash. Somebody shot John F. Kennedy. You need to report it accurately. Armed forces attacked a peaceful group of mourners holding a coffin aloft. It fell out. I mean, her body could have fallen out of the casket. Um, and, and this is incidental, but she, she was a Christian. This is important to say, Michael. This woman who's died is a Christian, many Christians in, in, in Palestine. Of course, it doesn't matter what her faith is, but to see a coffin, a casket, and it had Christ on the top, and for religious leaders in this country, the Archbishop of Canterbury has not said anything, right? This is the Holy Land. This is a, a Christian woman in the Holy Land. As she, her death is being mourned by people, they're being attacked by, you know, well-equipped, effectively, a, a paramilitary force. And not a peep from our political leaders. Yeah, Boris Johnson will happily say, we are a Christian country. Well, okay. Normally, you'd probably want to make this uh, a point to perhaps highlight I find it remarkable. The hypocrisy is just astonishing. But the, the ancillary story is, as well for me is just the media coverage. I find it extraordinary, Michael. We have, think about this for a second, and, and you, did, you did raise it earlier, and it's important to say, I don't think any other country on earth would behave like this. And that's not to say there aren't countries worse than Israel. You might say with a bunch of indices, you could say some countries are worse than others fine. But I honestly can't think of any country that would do this so brazenly. Russia, you know, yes, we know, for instance, that the Kremlin has taken out journalists. But the idea that it, it attacks the people mourning the dead journalists as they're holding their coffin. By the way, her family as well, when they were mourning, Israeli forces go there as well, and they shot her in the face. You know, this is one of the leading journalists in the Arab world. And, and like you say, it speaks of impunity. And today there are a couple of politicians calling it out, and they're saying this is terrible. It can't be allowed to happen. It's happening because of people like you who give the confidence to the Israeli state that they know they can do things like this without any consequences of any meaning whatsoever. And it's not even a question of, we don't condemn this stuff. We tacitly support it, Michael. We give the state of Israel political support. There is political consensus across the spectrum, Labour to Tory, about the fact that BDS, oh my God, boycott, divestment, sanctions, unethical, unacceptable. We're shooting a journalist in the face and uh, almost toppling her casket in open air and intimidating her family as they mourn her, that's acceptable. And the, the grim truth is, might makes right for these people. I don't think any normal person thinks this is, uh, is a reasonable way to carry on. And it is unique. And it's unique because they have the tacit support of Britain, Europe, and the United States. And anybody in these countries who tries to elevate political consciousness around this issue in a meaningful way, nine times out of ten, is singled out for attack, often slandered. You know, if you say this is a, a, an awful thing to happen, people say, well, that's anti-Semitic. What an utterly crazy, absurd, disgusting thing to say. And I, I saw people today on Twitter, you know, making excuses for what happened, saying, well, we don't know the full story. Oh, typical people are blaming, you know, Jewish people. It's anti-Semitic. That's the implication. I mean, now we know how evil happens, right? If nobody's celebrating them doing this, they just say, well, we don't know the full story. You have to have the context. Remarkable. And look, some of that, okay. 
We're not in charge of that. We're not in control of that. But we are in control of how our national broadcaster covers this. Disgusting, saying it's a clash. It's like saying somebody tries to knock you out with an iron pole, saying my head clashed with the iron pole. As if, you know, it's equally to blame. It's, um, it's a parody of poor journalism and even, even poor ethics. I did, a, I did an interview with Abdel Razak Tikriti on, on Wednesday show. If you haven't watched that, I do recommend it. Really, really powerful interview. And, you know, one of the things, you know, he's somewhat expert on the region. He knew the slain journalist. And one of the things that he was most sort of upset about was how this was being covered in the Western media. And partly because it's all, they're almost kind of like gaslighting Al Jazeera's staff because Al Jazeera have very, you know, they're, they're a big professional organization with very well-trained journalists. There were journalists at the scene. No, there were journalists at the scene. Normally, if you've got journalists who witness something with their eyes, you take that. There were more than one Al Jazeera journalist who witnessed the killing with their eyes, right? And they said, this was Israeli forces killing our colleague. And then all the rest of the world, they're just like, oh, Al Jazeera says this might have happened. Al Jazeera said this might have happened. No, two professionally trained journalists said this happened. And no one other than the military of a foreign country who, who, who should never be trusted by a journalistic organization, they're being given equal weight. And I think you saw it again there. So, so in that clip, you know, you've got the the hosts on Al Jazeera saying they've never seen anything like this. You know, this is this, this is their colleague, right? Their colleague is in a coffin, and while her coffin is being carried, the riot police of another country are literally beating the people who are holding the coffin up. They're saying, "I've never seen anything like this before in my life." The BBC, oh, there were some clashes at a funeral, right? It's like, do you not have any respect for your colleagues? And I was, I was trying to think of, you know, because I, I think it's a, you know, it's a reasonable thing to do. Lots of people on, on Twitter today sort of saying, imagine if this were a different situation, how people would react. And I do think, obviously, you know, doing this at anyone's funeral would be appalling, but it is worth noting, this is a really, really famous journalist, right? It, it's sort of like if, if John Simpson or Lise Doucette was killed in Russia, you know, by a sniper, Russia deny it. And I was trying to think, well, what would be the analogy? Would they they then attack the funeral? But it wouldn't work because for them to attack the funeral, they'd have to be occupying Britain and we don't live under occupation. That's why it's so hard to find an analogy because this only makes sense when you consider that these are people who live under occupation and their occupiers act with total impunity. And for some reason, the rest of the world is happy to just look on and make excuses for it. Say, oh, you know, we're not quite sure what happened. There was a funeral. There were some clashes. There was a bullet, there was a face, they met, and someone died. Right? It is, and this is one of their colleagues, this is a journalist. What solidarity is there when people won't report truthfully when not just, you know, and I don't want to say not just any old colleague because <laughs> anyone getting killed violently is appalling. Any journalist getting killed violently is appalling. But this is one of the leading journalists in the world who has been killed in cold blood and no one in the Western media is allowed to call a spade a spade. It's only last year that you had the offices of Al Jazeera and Associated Press. AP, Michael, you know, this is one of the most credible, legitimate names in global media. Uh, their offices were, were destroyed. They were uh, attacked, I think, bombed by uh, Israeli forces. So in the space of two years, you have that, where you have the Associated Press and Al Jazeera seeing their offices destroyed, and now you're seeing their staff members shot at, one fatally. There's no other country in the world that behaves like this. And we repeatedly hear about press freedom and journalists in danger. Uh, and of course, they mean, you know, people operating in Iran or in Russia and China. Why aren't they talking about Israel? You know, there is a serious, sustained problem with regards to media freedoms. You know, you can't talk about a free press, Michael, if you're literally murdering journalists doing their job. Uh, and the instinct of the Israeli authorities was to say that it wasn't us, it was the Palestinians, which makes it even worse, by the way. 
Because at least you could say, well, if they immediately announced, oh, well, there'll be an investigation, this shouldn't have happened, this was an errant sniper, completely unauthorized, obviously disgusting and unacceptable, but you could say, well, look, the state authorities at least care about how they look, right? The Israelis don't care how they look, Michael, because if civil society in an organized way tries to make there be any kind of consequences for their inhumanity and monstrous behavior, well, those people are marginalized, uh, whether they're protesters, whether they're in business, or whether they're politicians. People need to grow a backbone and actually stand by their commitments for, for, for the rule of law and human rights and basic dignity uh, and, and not be cowed on this stuff. Uh, and I hope they're not. I hope the experience in Europe over the last five years, particularly around Jeremy Corbyn, I really hope that instills in people a, a, a sense of personal strength and, and standing by your values. What is happening in Israel is unacceptable. In, in 50, 60 years' time, people look back on that as utterly, utterly barbarous. You know, they will look at it as we look at things from the 19th century. They will say, how the hell did that happen in 2022? I, I fully believe that because it's such a, it is such an, an outlier and an anomaly precisely because Israel claims to be this great democracy. Democracies, of course, don't behave like that. That, you know, of course they don't. They don't shoot journalists in the face. So we, we'll see. Will there be political consequences? Well, certainly not in this country. We had we had people from the Israeli Labour Party, Michael, monitoring our own local elections with the Labour Party. The, the Israeli Labour Party was determining whether we were having, you know, free and fair elections, and whether the British Labour Party is no longer racist. We're living in upside down land. So I, I don't expect any credible, serious input from Labour politicians. Certainly not from Tory ones either. But civil society and, and protest has to keep going because it's so awful. Let's go to our next story. The entire 16-strong executive of the Wakefield Constituency Labour Party has resigned over an alleged stitch-up. A by-election is due in the constituency, but the favoured candidate of Labour members to win back the seat hasn't made it to the shortlist. A source within the local party told us today... The executive has resigned because they needed to take some direct action over the process of the parliamentary selection. If they hadn't resigned, I think it would look like they were condoning the process and what's happened. And they don't condone it. It's been unfair and undemocratic. So what happened? Well, Wakefield is facing a by-election because their Tory MP, Imran Ahmad Khan, was found guilty of molesting a child. The seat is a crucial one for Labour. The party held it for 87 years until the 2019 election when it fell to the Tories. Now Labour has a chance to take it back. And it will be a major test of Keir Starmer's ability to win back the so-called Red Wall. But winning the seat doesn't appear to be the only interest of Labour Party bigwigs. They also appear to want to control exactly who stands. And it seems they've been willing to break the rules to do so. According to sources in the CLP, the shortlisting panel included only one member of the local party. That's in contravention of this rule passed at Labour's 2021 party conference. So the rule reads, it was passed, selection committees for by-elections should have three reps from the local party appointed by the local executive committee, one representative from the regional executive committee appointed by the chair and vice chairs of the REC, and one NEC member. So, local members were supposed to get three of the five seats, and they only got one. And lo and behold, this meant the preferences of local members were ignored. Hence, the executive have resigned. The two candidates who made it to the final shortlist are Kate Dearden, a former chair of Labour Students, who works for the Community Trade Union, 
and Simon Lightwood, who is an NHS worker and former staffer for Wakefield's previous MP, Mary Cray. Cray herself was already controversial in the constituency, our source in the CLP said. Mary, our previous MP, lost a lot of support from residents because of her stance on fighting for a second referendum and her involvement in the people's vote. The majority of residents want someone who represents their views. I don't think necessarily an MP needs to share the views, but they do need to represent the people that elected them. As we saw with Mary being voted out of Wakefield and losing a Labour MP for the first time in 90 years, that wasn't popular amongst voters. Wakefield voted 66% for leave during the Brexit referendum, and this was Mary Cray while she was representing them, campaigning for a people's vote. Cray was parachuted in from Islington in 2005 and lost the seat in 2019. But Labour bigwigs appear to have learnt very little. As I've already said, one of the two candidates shortlisted is a former staffer of Cray, and the other clearly shares her politics. In a since-deleted tweet, this is Kate Dearden campaigning in Parliament Square in early 2019, campaigning for people's vote there. And according to local sources, these two candidates were imposed despite there being three other options backed by the CLP. That included the deputy leader of the council, so clearly a plausible candidate. Before I go to Aaron, I'm going to go to Keir Starmer for his view. He tweeted, The selections for Labour candidates need to be more democratic, and we should end NEC impositions of candidates. Local members should select their candidates for every election. Of course, that was Keir Starmer in 2020. It's ancient history, and we couldn't possibly hold Starmer to commitments he made such a long time ago. Aaron, your comments on what looks like a stitch-up in Wakefield. Only people in Westminster, only British politicians, would think that Keir Starmer is a man of integrity. (laughs) What hasn't this guy lied about? I mean, they're making fools of themselves, right? These people tweet, Keir Starmer, Mr. Integrity. He's literally gone back on absolutely everything he says. How stupid do you look? But because 20 of my colleagues said it, oh, I'll say it it too. They're lemmings. By the way, is the exact same logic we saw in regards to the second referendum stuff. As you've said, Michael, there was a change at conference last year, which said that when you don't have sufficient time, as with a by-election, you need to have three members of the local CLP determined by the executive to sit on a shortlisting panel. And rather than three, there were one. And according to that rule change, there should be one member of the NEC, which of course Starmer controls, but that was inverted, so there were three. So Keir Starmer didn't just defy what was decided at conference last year, he has directly contravened the very words that were tweeted in 2020. So he's not just out by a little bit, he's not just kind of smoothed things over, he's done the complete opposite of what he said. He has absolutely undermined local activists to enhance the influence of the National Executive Committee. Now, they've shortlisted two people, both Remainers, right? And neither of them are from the constituency. Um, and as you've said, uh, one of them previously worked for Mary Cray, I believe is from the Northeast. And um, there's Kate, Lady, was it Kate Dearden, Michael? Um, yep, I believe she's from, yeah, she's from Bradford. So she, that's good. She's from Yorkshire. But what, what you're seeing here is quite interesting. Now, from what I'm told, the, the Labour sort of leadership don't see the Brexit issue as a problem because, look, that seems to have been neutralised in the local elections. Of course, it was still a major issue last year. They got thumped in Hartlepool because they, partly because they ran a Remainer in a very leave seat. And they think that's now been neutralised as an issue because you get Lib Dems winning in Sunderland or whatever. Now, in a, local, in a set of national elections, i.e. local elections, which we just had, I think that's probably true. I don't think Brexit's going to play as a major issue at local elections anytime soon. However, 
in a by-election, in a seat which 66% voted to leave, I think running one of two Remainers is a big mistake. And I think having them determined by a leadership in London is also a big mistake. This is something that the Labour right don't get. This is part of now the national zeitgeist. People don't want to be told what to do. That's what Brexit was all about. And it's very hard for the for the London big house pundits to get their heads around. They go, whoa, two, three thousand of us in the TV studios of central London and Westminster, we don't get to decide? No, you don't. Not anymore. That's just how politics has kind of turned out in the last 10, 15 years, whether it's Brexit, Corbyn, Scottish independence. People uh, from the bottom up now have, have more power than they used to. Uh, partly now growth have changed political kind of opportunities with the consensus of the 1990s collapsing, partly technology, however you want to explain it, it's definitely here. And one of the people who who should have been shortlisted, who wasn't one of the councillors, he posted an interesting post on Facebook. I tweeted about it uh, earlier today. And you can see the comments, hundreds of comments from local residents, not Labour Party members, saying they still don't get it. We want someone from here who we decide to represent us. We don't want a coterie of people in London deciding who gets to represent Wakefield because it helps Keir Starmer with his internal party management, right? We don't want a little yes man working for the leader of the Labour Party. We want a a parliamentarian, you know, uh, looking out for our best interests. Now, a great example of where this worked was Kim Ledbetter. The process to select her, by the way, in in Batley on Spent was terrible, which is something that's been remarked upon by many activists in in Wakefield that I've spoken to. They said the process was terrible, but they got a good candidate because she was local. And they said, we never would have won that if, if we didn't have a local candidate. Because you knock on the doors, they say, oh, yeah, I know Kim. My kids used to play with her, or I used to see her at the local school, or I, know, I knew her sister, or I knew uh, this relative of hers. So that deep organizing, as it's called, which, by the way, has been dismissed and derided by Keir Starmer. He, after all, broke down the uh, community organizing unit, which had been created by his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn. That deep organizing is fundamental if Labour wants to not just form the next government, but keep hold of seats like this. And they don't just not get that, Michael. They still think it's a joke. They still think it's a joke. And the very genre of politics, which Keir Starmer embodies, is about London, policy wonks, you know, uh, transfixed with the media, going to the summer parties of the Spectator and the, uh, the Guardian, and thinking basically, we still call the shots from within the M25. Politics no longer works like that. And I think Labour under Keir Starmer are going to find that out the hard way. Obviously, this is just one of many stories of Labour stitch-ups. The stories when it comes to like council selections, the people who have been dismissed, you know, people who have been found ineligible to stand for councils. So many incredibly well-qualified people who've been suspended for the most ludicrous of reasons. So this is, you know, People always say in their leadership elections, I want everything to be very democratic. And then, you know, especially if you're Keir Starmer, you come to power, suddenly all I'm interested in is making sure anyone with a remotely different ideology to me or a remotely different ideology to my staff, which I think is very important in this case, has no chance whatsoever of advancement in this party. Next story. The government's pathetic response to the cost of living crisis has been called out by a top economist. This is Miata Fanbula, director of the New Economics Foundation laying into Suella Braverman. When you top up all the measures that the government has put in place, families on average are still £1,100 worse off. So your numbers are literally made up. They're literally made up. And, you know, the analysis that we've done at the New Economics Foundation suggests that this year, one in three households and half, half of all our children are going to struggle to afford 
bread and butter things are going to have to make day-to-day -day sacrifices just to stay afloat. And it doesn't feel like the government has grasped the scale of the challenge. Because if you had, if you had, you would have acted by now. And you talk about the lowest families. The Chancellor took a thousand pounds from those families last year. And then in the spring statement that we just had, there was literally not a single measure, not a single measure that would support families on the lowest incomes in this country. And there are things that you could do to act. And you're choosing not to, but there are things that you could do. So that windfall tax is a legitimate thing that you could do. Use that to bear down on bills for the next year to 18 months, whilst we have a Great Homes Upgrade, a national program of home installation, so we can insulate millions of homes over the next three years. And then you combine that with a 15 billion package to boost to benefits, so that families that are at the sharp end of this crisis that the Chancellor has left to languish, has left to languish, where people are moving well beyond the choice of heating your home or feeding your kid. They're not doing either. And for me, when we have families on the brink, when we have children going into destitution, when two million people in the richest country in the world are skipping meals because they can't afford it, the fact you're not acting, I think, is unforgivable. There's a lot of that was so well explained. As a result of Tory policies, households are, on average, £1,100 worse off this year. In the spring statement, there were no measures for the poorest families. And what we need to do is to tax energy giants to pay to uprate people's benefits so they don't go hungry. It's what a compassionate government would do. And it makes perfect economic sense. Rishi Sunak isn't budging, though. And speaking to Bloomberg, he gave a new reason why benefits can't increase to match inflation this year. The technical problems that sounds like a, uh, an excuse, but the, the operation of our welfare system is actually technically complicated and it's not necessarily possible to do that for everybody. Uh, and actually many of the systems are built in a way that that can only be done once a year and the decision was taken quite, quite a while ago before. But you managed to put the furlough, realized. you designed the furlough scheme for most of the, world, of the yes, UK popular we, working force we, we, we for a few weeks. Uh, the, the welfare system works in a, in a very different way and we're constrained somewhat by the operation of the welfare system. So it can't be done for everybody in that way. That's right. According to Rishi, millions of families will have to go without enough food or heating this year because a computer in the Treasury said no. Aaron, I mean, we talk a lot on this show about ridiculous excuses as to why the government can't do the simple thing and help people. But computer says no. That's kind of a new one, isn't it? Yeah. And also, you have to remember, Michael, this is the Chancellor who was overseeing furlough, right? I don't think that... At the beginning of 2020, the Tories were thinking, oh, you know what, we're going to have the biggest program of out-of-work benefits the country's ever seen. You know, at one point, I think the state in this country was, was uh, paying the wages of a quarter of the labour market or something. Just, just extraordinary. Millions of people were getting these payments from, from the government not to work. If you had a computer says no mentality then, I mean... You know, I, I think probably things wouldn't have worked out as you probably uh, might have hoped. I think we would, would have had massive unrest, which is why they did it. And I suppose the calculation now is that what we're going to see this year won't lead to major political consequences. I think that's wrong, by the way, Mike. Important to say, you know, if we are going to see inflation of um, 10% this year, which is what the Bank of England predicted at the end of last week, the Centre for Economics and Business Research predicted six weeks ago, Inflation of 10%, we've not seen anything like that since the late 1970s. Now, people love to complain about the 70s and say inflation was high, wage increases were higher. So, you know, I, I don't know why they hate that, yeah, but th there we are. Now we're seeing high inflation, but wage increases not as high. So big problem there. You see a real fall in, in living standards. Now, the uh, OBR on the day of the, um, of the budget in late March 
the OBR predicted that the average person would lose about 500 pounds in spending power. So the average person watching this, well, you're not probably representative necessarily of, um, of Britain. The average person in the UK working age will be 550 pounds, I think, worse off as a result of inflation rising, which is to say the price of things going up more quickly than your wage increases. Now, that looks, I think, optimistic. The Center for Economics and Business Research said it was optimistic at the time. They predicted £1,000, not 500 And I think from what the Bank of England is saying, they're tending towards the, the worst-case scenario here. So the average person will be £1,000 worse off this year as a result of inflation. That's before interest rate rises. Of course, if you're, if you're on a variable rate mortgage, which is millions of people, you will see your mortgage also go up uh, over the course of the year by you know, more than a thousand pounds, thousands of pounds potentially. Rishi Sunak privately said that interest rates will go to 2.5%. I, I thought that'd be a bigger story. It's not. Now, uh, that is not high by historical standards. You know, before the global financial crisis, they were 5%. But even at 1%, that's the highest they've been, I believe, in 13 years. So if it's going to 2.5%, when you've got rising inflation, when you're going to have rising unemployment is a major, major problem. And I think what his response to that question shows is that we're in a situation now, probably for the first time in about 40 years, where politicians are being uh, confronted with low growth, high inflation, and, and potentially rising interest rates, all, all three at once, and they don't really know what to do about it. And of course, increasing interest rates is designed to deal with inflation. Uh, the problem is that we're importing our inflation. You know, I don't see what it's going to do because we've got higher inflation because of supply side changes higher energy costs, higher food costs, higher raw materials because of COVID, rising demand across the world, and then, of course, the, uh, the, the war in Ukraine. So it is a unique set of circumstances, which actually no politician anywhere on earth who is in politics, that includes Joe Biden, who's in his late 70s, no serving politician at a, an elite level was around the last time we had a set of circumstances like this. So I think they lack the the intellectual and policy toolkit to really be aware of, of, of how to respond. And I think Sunak's response there is doing down the question, in a sense, is diminishing it, I think illustrates that. The answer is offensive in so many ways. I mean, obviously, it's just bullshit. The reason that benefits are only rising by 3% when inflation is 10% is because Rishi Sunak is ideologically committed to making poor people pay for this crisis and protecting the incomes of, of the wealthy. That's the real reason. But even if you take him at his word, even if the computer systems are you know, designed in such a way that it's very difficult um, to increase benefits more than once in a year, given runaway inflation, even if you take him at his word, how difficult does he think it is to live on the breadline and then have food prices rise by 10% when your income's only rising by 3%, right? If what we're talking about is this being a bit difficult, his solution is that, oh, it'd be too difficult to rise them this year, maybe we'll do it next year. People have to live through a year and a winter before that, right? And I think it's going to be a little bit easier for the Treasury to sort out their computer system than it is for millions of people to magic money out of thin air so that they don't have to choose between heating their homes or, or eating. Or as Miata Fanbula in that clip said, doing neither. Because if you have no money, that is a problem that cannot be solved. A computer system making a little bit dif difficult to upgrade benefits twice a year, that is a problem which can be solved, right? So as I say, obviously what's going on here is ideological, but that excuse, it just adds insult to injury for me. Next story. Boris Johnson is responsible for renewed instability in Northern Ireland. The hard Brexit he favoured threatened the Good Friday Agreement. And now, egged on by the Tories, the DUP are holding the Northern Irish Assembly to ransom until the UK dumps the Northern Ireland Protocol. 
It's a mess of Britain's making. And I have a theory as to how we got here. It's that barely anyone in Britain knows anything about Northern Ireland. This was an audience intervention on this week's Question Time. Um, I don't know what's changed since I went to school, but Northern Ireland was always part of Great Britain. So for the EU to start negotiating and introduce this border, what's it got to do? We don't have a problem with stuff going from England to Wales or England to Scotland. So as Northern Ireland's part of Great Britain, why should we have this border? Why don't someone grow a pair and tell the EU to go and sling near Rook? Because it's part of the Great Britain, it's not part of the EU. Southern Ireland is, but Northern Ireland ain't. Northern Ireland is not and has never been part of Great Britain. Great Britain is the name for the island made up of England, Scotland and Wales. Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. And more concretely, there is a reason that after Brexit, trade with Northern Ireland can't be the same as trade between England, Scotland and Wales. It's called the Good Friday Agreement, a document which ended decades of violence caused by, yes, British colonialism. Now, at this point, you might be asking why we're picking on some random guy in the audience for having a poor grasp of the history and politics of Britain and Ireland, and you might have a point. But the same can't be said for our next clip. Suella Braverman is Britain's Attorney General. She's the Cabinet member taking a lead on the Northern Ireland Protocol, and this is what she said on Question Time. What we've also seen is a wholesale collapse of the political institution governing Northern Ireland. We've seen the Stormont executive collapse because the majority of uh, MLAs, the members of the uh, executive who are unionists, refuse to support the protocol and refuse to take part in that executive. That's a precondition for the Good Friday Agreement. That is damaging the Good Friday Agreement, the foundation of peace. It is damaging the delivery of services for the Northern Irish people. It's damaging trust in Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom. And as a government and as a Conservative, a proud Conservative and Unionist Party member, I cannot sit by and watch the breakup of our United Kingdom. What Suella Braverman said there was simply false. She said the majority of MLAs in the Northern Irish Assembly were Unionists. In fact, only 41% of MLAs are, with the rest being nationalist or or non-aligned. Even more significant was her lie about the protocol. Braverman suggested the majority of MLAs opposed the Northern Ireland Protocol, but in fact, both Sinn Féin and the Cross-Community Alliance Party back it, meaning there is a majority in favour of the protocol. And it really is worth emphasising, Braverman is the person in the Cabinet with the biggest role in determining Britain and Northern Ireland's future relationship. And she's either lying about Northern Ireland or has absolutely no idea what's going on there. I'll go to Aaron on this in one moment. First, though, I can't resist showing you the original, the classic clip of an audience member's big brain take on the politics of Ireland. It's from a couple of years ago, but worth watching again. Another point I'm going to make is the DUP and the EU seem to be really levering the Ireland backstop thing for the whole of Brexit. There's thousands of issues, I'm sure, to do with Brexit, but it's always to do with the Good Friday Agreement, the DUP, the Northern Ireland backstop, all this. I'm like, well, what's, why does that one issue stop and put a, a big break on the whole thing and we have to negotiate around that? And why doesn't it, you know, it's going to sound crazy, but Ireland being referred to as Ireland, the island of Ireland, why don't we try and just get that as an island again and then we can carry on with our own thing? What, what, just no longer have Northern break Ireland... Break up the as, union. Uh, yes, break yeah. up, no longer have it as part of no. yeah, just the United Kingdom. Ireland... The whole of Ireland. 
<laughs> Sorry, I love that clip. Um, obviously, I am much more sympathetic to that guy than the first one we showed you, but the, the compilation of all three clips do show um, how little most people in Britain have ever thought about Ireland. Obviously, that guy in the polo shirt didn't invent the concept of Irish unity, despite what he might imagine. Um, Aaron, how much does it matter, this ignorance in, in Britain of the politics of Ireland and Northern Ireland? Yeah, I'll correct you there, actually, and I'll push back on the premise of the question. I, w- I would say the ignorance is, 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 is primarily English. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people in Wales or Scotland who, who would say something similar. Of course they would. But I think for England in particular, there is a, a unique ignorance about um, our sense of national identity and also our, our political identity. So what do I mean? Well, I think for most English people, there is data about this, but there is a lack of awareness and understanding, or even actually caring, fundamentally, about, well, what's the difference between Great Britain and the United Kingdom, which is, of course, Great Britain and Northern Ireland? What's the difference between England and Britain? You know, up until the Second World War, the 50s, the 60s, it was quite common to sort of use Britain and England interchangeably. And there is a reason for this, which is the United Kingdom of, of Great Britain and, and Northern Ireland is composed of four states and, and overwhelmingly, four nations rather, overwhelmingly that the largest is England. I think out of 65 million people, 56 million are English. And Britain itself, the concept of Britain as a nation, um, emerges from the collapse of the world's largest ever empire, which was the British Empire. And so we're only sort of two, three generations into that, Michael. And so the older gentleman there, just talking complete crap, he was probably raised in a sort of post-imperial context. Let's say he's born in 1950, 55. You know, the, the, the political atmosphere within which he grew up was very much one of this polity is effectively still a continuation of the British Empire, which unraveled kind of slowly through to the mid-1960s. So there are, there are concrete explanations why English people in particular uh, are so bad on this. Uh, but I, I find the default quite interesting. You know, it has manifestations like that, which are negative, uh, and it has positive ones like the gentleman in the turtleneck. But I also think it's the default of, of most English people when they're, and I think this is quite rare, and I think it's very positive, actually, when they're confronted with, oh, well, Scotland might vote to leave the UK. Okay, well, uh, that might be good or bad. They might be unhappy or sad, whatever, but that's their business. And I think, generally speaking, that is the default with regards to Scotland, Northern Ireland. I'm not saying it's the position of the elite or of the media or Westminster or MI5, because it, it ain't. I'm talking in re- regards to the electorate there is a there is public opinion which is more favorable to that than there is, say, in Spain towards independence for Catalonia. We've seen that you know, time after time with opinion polling. Um, and I think, ironically enough, I think that ambivalence about whether or not these nations leave the union is partly born out of ignorance. Well, I mean, I think clearly in the case of Brexit, the ignorance of, I, I probably agree with you as well, the ignorance of England has done a lot of damage because, you know, there was a settlement which worked for both communities. Essentially, you know, predominantly England voted for an outcome which completely undermined that without knowing or caring why or how. And then you've had a government mm-hmm. which has behaved completely irresponsibly towards Northern Ireland by signing the protocol and then ripping up the protocol. And now they don't have a devolved government essentially because the Tories are ragging on the DUP. They're pretending the DUP position is the majority position when it's absolutely not the majority position. The majority position in Northern mm-hmm. Ireland is in favour of the protocol. You know, so you, you have got an English government which is playing games with Northern Ireland. And I think that the reason they are able to do that and act so irresponsibly is because of well, their own ignorance, but also the fact that, you know, it's not going to become a live electoral issue because no one really understands it. 
But I think you are right. When it comes to, you know, an actual vote for independence, especially in the case of Scotland, that seems more plausible in the, the very near future. The yeah. indifference of the English might be quite helpful. It's just sort of like live and let live, you know. Well, they want to go on their own yeah. way. Fine. If they want to stay, they can stay. If they want to go, they want to go, which is probably the, the right attitude um, towards yeah, it's, self-determination. It's like, you know, they've got the sort of the Chad meme and then you've got like the kind of like the guy crying. So that's, that's like MI5 and the BBC is like, no, you need to care about the union. And they're like, uh, you know, like this, this guy in the turtleneck, I've no, I, I've no idea what's going on. Let them do what they want to do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's we, we kind of saw that a little bit in 2014. I don't think many people saw Scottish independence as, as viable. Ultimately, it lost, it lost by 10%, which is a big margin. But I, I think if you look at, for instance, um, you know, our Trident missiles are based in uh, deep water ports in Scotland. It'd be very hard to relocate them. I think if there was another referendum with regards to Scotland, I think you'd see the whole NATO thing. And, oh, you know, somehow if, if Scotland leaves the Union, it means we're exposed to Russia. God knows how. These would be the arguments in circulation. I think it would be far more venomous and angry than the first time round, but that would be pushed by the media, by elite discourse. It wouldn't be coming from the bottom. Let's wrap up there. Before we go, Aaron, I want you to explain to the audience um, a downstream that I think you have coming out this weekend. I think it's going to be super interesting. Oh, that's great. That's very kind of you to say, Michael. So we've interviewed uh, Lutva Rahman, who is the new mayor for Tower Hamlets. He's just, um, he's completed, I think, one of the most impressive comeback stories in, in British political history. He was a Labour councillor and, uh, and the group leader of the Tower Hamlets Labour group of councillors from 2008-2010. He tried to be the Labour candidate for Tower Hamlets mayor. Didn't get it. Ran as an independent. He won in 2010. He ran with his own party in 2014. He won. And then in 2015, he was removed in a quite extraordinary way. He was found guilty by a civil court, it's important to say. Uh, he was never found guilty by a jury or he was never prosecuted by the Crown Prosecution Service. In fact, in 2018, there was found to be insufficient evidence. So he's never been found guilty by a, a court of anything with regards to criminal law. However, most people won't know that. So he was removed as Tower Hamlet's mayor. He was destroyed for a bunch of reasons. He lost everything. He was debarred as a, as a solicitor. He, was, he lost hundreds of thousands of pounds. He was, you know, that's what he was on the hook for. And yet, at the beginning of May, he came back um, and he's once more mayor for Tower Hamlets and his party, Aspire, now controls Tower Hamlets Council. Aspire in England gained more councillors than Labour. Aspire, Aspire gained 24, Labour gained 22. So this is a remarkable comeback story, not being covered by legacy media. I talked to Lutva Rahman about his comeback, about those charges in 2015 and about what he wants to do in Tower Hamlets because clearly... This is an extraordinary story, not just a collapse for the Labour Party in a major London borough, but a local politician defying the odds repeatedly. So who is he and what does he stand for? Catch that uh, Sunday afternoon on Downstream. If you're not already subscribed, make sure you do now so you don't miss that. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.